Hello, and welcome to Let's Just Talk. I'm your host, Harmi. Joining us today is none other than Professor Lathan Thomas, a visiting professor of the practice of gender and sexuality studies at Brown University. Professor Thomas here is also a well-known, emphasis on well-known, uh, maternal wellness expert, doula, and holistic lifestyle maven. You're going to have to explain to us what all of that means in a bit. Um, she's also <laughs> the founder and CEO of Mama Glow, which she established to fill the gap in maternal wellness education and support for women um, and birthing people on the continuum. Professor Thomas, welcome to Let's Just Talk. We're excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Hami. Of course. Um, to begin, we want to know all about you. Can you share with us what inspired you to become a maternal wellness expert, doula, and advocate for uh, women's health? And you know, while you're also doing that, we're novices at this, so please feel free to explain to us what it means to be a maternal wellness expert, a doula, and an advocate for women's health. Uh, thank you so much um, for the introduction and the invitation. And, um, you know, I'm inspired by um, the future, right? And um, the opportunity that we have as um, educators and leaders to help shape the future through um, reaching young people. And it is through my um, professorship, the appointment at Brown, that I've had the opportunity to work with young people who are interested in shaping this future that at your age, um, if I go back 20 years, I was in my early 20s and I was actually coming out of college. That's when I sort of started my journey into this field of birth work, but also my interest in really uh, looking at the care gaps that exist in this country really started there, right? And so I was actually like your age. And um, and so it's been really a blessing to be here many years later, over two decades later, still sort of on a path of doing this work. You know, my inspiration, I would say, or maybe even just the notion that you could move in this direction of of being in service of um, birthing individuals i think that interest was sparked when i was a child and i was at four years of age when my mother was pregnant with my sister uh, at the same time my great aunt was pregnant and my aunt was pregnant and so there were three women who were all pregnant at the same time these powerful black women and I watched them like grow and expand in their bodies and their consciousness around the process. And then I was also able to see, you know, like the life cycle unfold. Right. And, um, you know, through that, my mother gave me um, a bunch of educational resources. So I had um, the Gray's Anatomy coloring book, which taught me about the pelvic anatomy. I had um, a show on PBS called My Mom's Having a Baby that I watched. And there was just, yeah, there was like a lot of tools that I had that could help me orient around this new process of becoming a big sister and what was going to happen for my mom. Mm -hmm. And so it was through that lens, right, of education. Um, my mother would always say that, like, 
I was so obsessed with the anatomy that I would say to people, they'd say, oh, your, your mother has a baby um, in her, uh, in her tummy. And I'd say, no, she has a baby in her uterus and it's going to come out of her vagina. And so they're like, oh my gosh, so, you know, like this kid at four really understands anatomy. But I had, I had really like memorized the pelvic map at that point, at that age. And so, you know, and the store and you're out here you would you say yeah the stork yeah exactly like I was like I knew it wasn't birds right but I but I knew like yeah I knew how the body worked and um and I learned that at an early age which you know is so important because so many of us don't get this education and a lot of what I teach in the doula training program and what I've also been able to share with the students at Brown is yeah is the understanding of like the 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 magical and mystical nature of the body but also the the deep wisdom that we actually lose out on because there's a lot of knowledge transfer that does not take place culturally and so when we get to you know high school and college we're sort of getting to know our bodies in ways where we're still also foreign Mm. and um, it is important to come to know your body at a very early age, not just for body literacy and autonomy, but also for safety, right? To understand when boundaries are being transgressed, to understand, you know, that your body is the arbiter of safety. And so to be able to better listen to your body as well, it's really important to kind of know your parts and how they work and how they work for you. And so that I think was a really important map early on. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that sort of laid the foundation once I became pregnant with my son, I think that also contributed, right, to my desire to continue to support birthing people. Mm. And shortly after he was born, mm. I made this, I took this path, right, to to start a business in this area, to develop a curriculum, and then to to really like set out to um, teach other individuals to mm. um, be in service of, of birthing people. Right. And so uh, you started touching on your personal journey a lot. Um, I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about that as well. How has your personal journey and experiences shaped your approach to holistic well-being and maternal care? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, my experience was that I was delivering in New York City. Um, I wanted to have a really beautiful, um, I wanted to have an experience that was beautiful, but that was also really um in service of my, um, my vision, right. For healthy, for dignified, for, um, transcendent, you know, birth. And I knew that was possible. Um, my background was like plant systems and environmental sciences and stuff. And so I was able to understand through my, um, through my journey um, in the university that, and and just like in my background, um, how plants and um, the really the ambient landscape, the natural world works. Mm. And I know that we are also in line with that and attuned to that. And so I knew that I could have an experience that was like um, affirming and also deeply aligned with like nature and natural patterns and systems. Mm. And so I wanted to have a kind of experience that I would expect in California to have. I wanted to have that in New York. And so I sought to find the best practitioners and products and services and Mm. all of that. I found my way to a birth center 
um, in New York City called Elizabeth Seaton Childbearing Center. It was the only freestanding birth center in New York. And what I mean by that, a freestanding birth center is a space where um, individuals can come to um, get their prenatal care with midwives. Um, that care that's given through midwives is also through the lens of the midwifery model of care, which centers the patient and it's outside of the hospital. So there isn't the clinical policies um, in place that we have in hospitals, as well as the, I would say in many cases, um, some of the harsher uh, policies and um, procedures and, and treatments that we have to sort of undergo when we um, enter into our current medical model, right? Um, it's a it's a more um, aligned and attuned, and I would say um, a space where people have more sovereignty and agency in the process. And so I wanted to deliver there. I had access to midwives. Um, you met all the midwives who were on staff. And then depending on the day that you went into labor is who would deliver you. And so I was thankfully able to deliver with the midwife that I loved. And, um, and I was able to serve at some births with her later in life as well, which was wonderful. Um, but in a, in a dual capacity, but, um, for me, what was transformative was that experience in the birth center. You know, I had a, I had a visitation from my ancestors inside the birth of my son. And it was through that experience that I knew that I was supposed to be committed to this work, but also I knew that, um, I had to, I knew that I was, I was blessed with this experience to also be a testimony, right? Because so many people have experiences that are not affirming, uh, where they barely make it through, where they barely survive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I had one where I felt affirmed and supported and it was actually the way it was supposed to flow. Right. Like it was, it was the perfect birth for me and my child. And it was an incredible way for him to come earthside and feel like, you know, and it was just, it was peaceful. You know, he wasn't crying. He was just calm. And I was like, wow, you know, because Everything else in the world, everything that we see on television, everything that's perpetuated through media signals that birth is dangerous, that it's an accident waiting to happen, that the body is this, you know, precarious space and we have to save the baby from the body because the body, you know, is, you know, likely to fail. And these are, this is a lens through which we are seeing, our bodies are seen um, within the medical landscape. And this is also because the medical system is based within um, white supremacist patriarchy, right? And so a female body is not deemed as the, um, the norm, right? Uh, what's actually deemed as norm is a cis white heterosexual male body, right? And those are the bodies that we study, that we do research on, right? Um, and that we find cures for, right? When there are diseases, we find cures, right? When there is like some a pathology, we're going to find a way to solve for that. Um, when it's, um, if, if you're other bodied, right? If you have a different physical experience, um, if we think about the intersections with, with um, through which many of us live, right? Um, if you're racialized as black, right? Your experience in healthcare is quite different, right? Um, if you um, identify as trans or non-binary um, or 
if you are a queer and enter into the medical system, your experience is quite different, right? And so um, looking at the different configurations that we all show up through um, and the lenses through which we all experience our lives, um, healthcare can be quite precarious, right? Uh, in the United States. And so my vision and really my commitment uh, inside of this landscape is to not only help to transform through the teachings, but also to prepare people who are going to be on their path to medical school, um, who are going to be within the hospital systems to help change that culture from inside, right? Um, because we know people are going to continue to go to hospitals. We know that people are going to continue to deliver with doctors. We need more of us who um, have expanded mindsets, right? We're in those spaces. But we also need to think through how we divest in systems that aren't supporting us and actually build something new. Right. So what does and it look like to have care providers doing something new? Right. right. And so um, you touched a little bit on how different individuals uh, experience the healthcare system. And you touched mm -hmm. on the ex you slightly touched on the experience of uh, Black women. So I want to transition to Black maternal health and reproductive justice. Um, the issue yes. of, of um, Black maternal health disparities uh, remain alarmingly prominent, uh, as tragically exemplified by the untimely passing of Tori Bowie, um, a mm -hmm. world champion and three times Olympic uh, medalist. She passed away from birthing complications, more specifically uh, respiratory distress and eclampsia. Am I pronouncing that right? Eclampsia. Yeah. Um, and this once again serves as a stark reminder uh, of the ongoing disparities faced by uh, Black birthing individuals. Uh, yeah. In the US, Black birthing people are three times more likely to die as a result of birth complications than their counterparts. Um, mm -hmm. And in light of this urgent concern, um, what essential strategies or actions do you propose to effectively address these uh, deeply entrenched disparities and ultimately enhance the well-being of Black birthing individuals? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like a multi-pronged approach that we have to take to address um, healthcare, to address the birth disparities, to address... Um, systemic racism, I think for folks first to understand the historic um, underpinnings, right, of the problem is important. So, you know, in 1619, we're in 2023 now, right? And so um, we commemorated in 2019, the 400-year um, anniversary of the um, our African ancestors being forcibly brought to the shores through uh, kidnapping and trafficking um, for the purposes of um, developing a, uh, a new economy and uh, an economy that would be dependent upon forced uh, labor um, through and uh, through violence and um, and that was state sanctioned right, as well as institutionalized, right? And so um, the chattel slavery was uh, the first time in history 
in the United States and really in all of the Americas, we see for the first time slavery that was not, um, you know, through capture of your enemies or, you know, things of that nature, but actually slavery that you'll be born into and die, right? And so this was a very unique form of an institutionalized uh, slavery that we, in the first of its kind, um, that was racialized, right? So if you think about um, also some of the advents during that time, one of the things that happened was um, there was a a, a movement to actually uh, criminalize the trafficking, right? So there was a point through which people were actually stealing bodies and trafficking them in undercover into the United States. Um, because you could no longer traffic people, what how do we continue how do we continue this this um, this movement, this this practice, this capitalist framework? How does it continue? Well, it continues through breeding, right? So this is where we develop actually the rudiments of gynecology mm-hmm. is through the process of actual human breeding. Right. And because our ancestors at the time not only were forced to breed and forced to feed, they were also um, systemically um, uh, violated. Um, There was rape, there was all kinds of horrifying things happening, right, to their bodies. As a result, there were um, injuries and pelvic trauma that existed that persisted and actually rendered some people incapable of having babies. And so we see the advent of modern gynecology developing as a pathway to ensure that future slaves, right? Right. Future enslaved people could be born. So we don't develop gynecology as a necessity for women and femmes to have um, healthcare right? It's actually developed out of the necessity to continue to create progeny, right? right? Of of the enslaved. And so what happens in that time is there are um, hospitals and um, I would say they they were really called like kind of like these, these, um, they were slave hospitals, they were run and and sort of operated by enslaved and bond women, and they were governed by um, doctors. Um, one famous one was with um, Dr. James Marion Sims, who was doing most of his work out of Alabama, and but then became a world-renowned surgeon. Um, and he was um, he was healing um, obstetric fistulas, which were a result of prolonged labor but also were a result of people who had been repeatedly assaulted. And um, and so he was suturing and finding ways in which to make these repairs. Um, He was also subjecting, through this process, subjecting um, Black women to um, forced procedures and treatments without their consent. Um, These treatments were also... um, Force upon them without anesthesia, um, anesthesia, even though anesthesia was widely available at the time. So 
you find this right as the crux, right? So when we think about like our bodies and some of these enslaved women underwent 30 to 50 procedures, 30 to 50 procedures without anesthesia, right? right? And so the so then we develop the instrumentation for that we today use. So if I go today for a pelvic exam, the instruments that were used, that were perfected on the bodies of our ancestors are used today, right? right? So we have to really first reckon with the fact that our bodies were being used for medical advancement. Our bodies were maimed for that, for, you know, to also advance um, medicine that would also benefit white women, right? But was at the time solely connected to and related to the advancement of slavery. And so we have to look at uh, a form of medicine, an institutionalized form of medicine that starts with the harm of our bodies. Exactly. Starts, right? And then we go hundreds of years forward and now we're talking about, now we're talking about like, well, how come we're, how come people are like, you know, not seeing us as human how come they see us as impervious to pain how come they don't recognize how come they dismiss how come this is actually it's a legacy right this is actually the the system operating the way it was designed right it was designed to harm and so so when we think about that right first right then we can think about um the ways in which is perpetuated inside the medical uh system Mm -hmm starting also through schooling and education we can look at the hazing traditions that are part of the medical institutions that like break people into uh silencing themselves to adhere to a culture that is based in harm and violence my medical school uh friends would love you for mentioning that hazing thing but (laughs) it is hazing making somebody sit for 24 hours and then like all of these things, all these ritual hazing rituals are embedded into medical school. And guess what? In college, we also learn them through fraternity and sorority culture, right? So that it's embedded to kind of help you get to a place where you normalize these things that are actually in any other setting would be con- constituted as abuse. Mm-hmm. It'd be constituted as assault. It'd be constituted as harm, right? Or as violence. And so in a culture where we normalize violence, right? Um, we have people who emerge from medical school who have never seen healthy, safe, nonviolent delivery. Right. We have people who've only seen violent birth happen within a medical setting, or they've only seen it on um, a, through assimilation, mm-hmm. right? So this is insane. So this is how our systems are designed, right? So then when we look at um, today, you see on the news, someone dies or someone has a near miss or it's like, how are we surprised? Like we literally have a framework that was designed for this type of culture to be perpetuated and also to be uplifted and in many cases rewarded because we do not hold accountable doctors that kill us. Just like we do not hold accountable police that murder us. Right. So we we need to kind of see that institutionally um, there are there are links within our medical system that are directly tied to our carceral system 
and how we see bodies and how we see black bodies um, in particular or other bodies is Mm -hmm. to confine them, Right. right? To surveil them and also to ignore them. So, so these are things that are like, that if we really look at systems, then we'll see that like, no, this is exactly how they're designed, right? And so mm-hmm. if we come on the other side and we have an incredible experience, that's actually a blessing right. because it's not designed for that, right? Um, and so so what I am most concerned with, you know, we talk about like Tori Bowie, we talk about, you know, which is a high profile death, right? We talk about like these, these, these people, that we don't hear. there's so many that we don't hear about, right? So many we don't hear about. I'm concerned with a conversation that um, that looks to the black person as fault, as a person who has faults in the in in a in a system that fails us, right? That somehow she would be at fault, right? That she should have done this or could have done that, or but nobody ever says like what were the conditions, and what were were what were the uh, responsibilities of all persons involved that could have led to a different outcome right um because we don't do this when we're talking about um white folks we just don't well how come they didn't do this it's always we're always to blame for our victimhood mm-hmm. we're always to blame inside of and we can't even be a victim because we actually don't have the privilege of being a victim we have to defend even in our death you know the fact that we were human and the fact that we were failed. And so my my we have a beautiful article that um Vinter Diara wrote on the, the Tory Bowie um loss. We love Bintu, who is currently in medical school at Brown, which we so proud of her. Um she wrote a beautiful article about this um, you know, about this kind of like villainizing black women around these experiences that are that they that they unique that we uniquely suffer from as a community right and and not having the support that we need um and so yeah i just i i think that um you know i'm really moved by all of the excitement around this moment and the the courage to like even someone like you like having this lens on reproductive justice and wanting to advance conversation it is so important because people are learning about this wherever they can, right? And um, and while there's a lot of conversation in the forefront, there isn't a lot of conversation around solution right. and around like what we can do and how we can advance as a community. There's a lot of, I think, um, conversation about what is happening from the lens of um, the violence and the, and also the, you know, it feels like it can be incapacitating for many people right it feels like it's so hard like how can i get over this you can do about it and one thing one thing i love uh, so far i just want to acknowledge what you've been telling us is that it will take an entire reinvigoration of the systems and institutions in place that have historically existed to perform in specific ways um and unless we do that uh, there is not much solutions that's going to come out of this because systems are designed to operate in a certain way. You drive a Tesla in the US, it's going to drive the same way in Europe, it's going to drive the same way in Asia. Um, and so I think that's one thing that you're talking about. But what I love about your work and Mama Glow and 
um, the way and the doula expose is the mental health approach to it. Um, I was reading about how you had like uh, nooks for people to sleep in at the doula expo and um, having like meditation workshops uh, for people to partake in. And so could you speak a little bit as we wrap up, could you speak a little bit about the intersection of mental health and maternal well-being? Uh, because yeah. um, a lot of this, these experiences that Black birthing individuals go through are traumatizing. And mm. their families, um, the people who are losing their loved ones or having to support their loved ones through this process, they're also dealing with a lot of trauma. Um, and so yeah. to the point where it becomes normalized, it's like, it's just what happens. Um, yeah. as, as if like when we're talking about the death of Black men on media and news, at this point, it's just what happens. You're just expected to uh, understand this reality and be like, it is what it is. Um, yeah. But I'm going to let you take that on. Thank you for that. I, I first want to say about the the death of of you know black bodies um being lynched on television or on our social media platforms um and we see this across the board right we see this with black women we see this with black men um we also see this within where people do film inside of the medical spaces which by the way you're not allowed to film right mm -hmm. so um where we, and this is why we don't have as many stories and, and uh, images or uh, video capture about uh, experiences of harm inside of, of medical institutions, just like we don't have them inside of our prison systems, right? We don't have video capturing a lot of the harms. Um, I would say this though, that while we can find a plethora of videos and photos and uh, constantly pervasive, like spectacle lynching that is in our um, purview, right? You have to like dodge it almost because it's there. We would never see, and we would never subject white people to pain at that level. Right. We would never ever have um, white bodies strewn all over the media that were maimed, that were shot at, that were. Full, full of bullets that were, we would never do that, right? And yet we are supposed to somehow internalize through watching these videos that um, that it's oh, that like, oh, it's just another day. Right. No, we are deeply moved and we are deeply wounded and it is traumatizing to see but it also moves us into a state of ni uh, nihilism, right? And it also moves people into a state where they kind of like, oh yeah, they numb themselves to the violence. No, we cannot normalize or, or get comfortable with violence, state sanctioned. We cannot get used to these images. And so I just wanna start with that. And also remind us that we do not have to internalize this media. We do not have to watch. Um, one of the things that I do to protect myself, because um, every time there is something that happens horrifying in the birth space, mm -hmm. people send me and my phone, I'll be like, oh, okay, something happened, right? I have to find out on my own time. And I also have to process and say something in my own time. When I'm ready. The expectation that the people who 
are part of communities that experience harm directly and indirectly would have words and comfort to give to others so that they could process the harm, especially those who aren't even in their communities, right? Uh, is horrifying that we do this, that we expect Black people and people of color who are oppressed and who experience direct harm to also coddle and support and make comfortable people who are from the dominant class that actually perpetuates the harm, right? We are expected to hold people in their discomfort in the thing that happened that impacts us, right? So I want to start with that because this directly correlates with um, how and why we're exhausted and need spaces for rest and respite and and reclamation and dreaming Mm -hmm. and mental health. Because the things that we encounter on a daily basis that are not even things that we want to encounter, by the way, like I might just be scrolling and I just find something, right? These things also chip away at you and the things you experience when you walk outside and the thing, right? And the microaggressions and the macro, all of it, right? So so the spaces we create for um, for rest, right? For doulas and, and families are critical because um, so much of what I do, even inside of the doula training, even at Brown, I like I have sound baths for the students and stuff so that they can rest and like recalibrate their nervous systems. I teach people about the limbic system, our emotional motor system, and how the things that we encounter on a daily basis actually like, you know, does impact the soma. And so how do we engage in practices that are mindfulness oriented and contemplative practices that do ground us and protect us? and affirm us in a time like this. You know, it's important to understand that like all these practices, right, that are ancient, you know, that our ancestors carried with them that um, that we like really need to find our way back to, m- number one, they're free, right? Number two, number two, they're being studied now, right? And what's interesting is people are packaging up our practices and then rebranding them, sanitizing them, and then putting them back out into the world and selling them to us. And we don't even recognize them. That it comes from us. Right? So very important to remember that the humming, that the stomping, that the dancing, that the twerking, that the, the singing, that the talking loud and the laughter and the clapping and, and the good food and the song and, and the, the jokes and the, you know, all the things that we do, those are ways that we also like, like help process the brunt of systemic racism and oppression and get it out of our bodies, right? So we already have practices that were passed down to us that help us with that. Right. Rest is one of them. Rest also is one that we are in conflict with because we live inside of capitalism and because we believe that we are only productive if we're doing something. Right. And because we have our bodies have been equated over so many years with productivity, like our literal bodies were vessels of productivity and we did not have sovereignty over our bodies, right? It is hard to now be of a generation who receives the privileges of our ancestors that they did not have to sit here and say, okay, I'm gonna go lay down. It's hard for us to actually do that when it wasn't available. You don't even have to go right? Like our parents themselves will tell you, 
Do you know? They they I'm don't go lay down. The, 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 the they won't go lay down, right? Yeah. No, they will not lay down either. They see it as laziness, right? And that, but that's also white supremacist patriarchy on them. Like they internalize that message that no, I have to do this because otherwise I'm lazy, right? No, an entire system, an entire system would benefit from your labor for free for hundreds of years. And you, the descendant, would think that you cannot rest or that you cannot take benefit from everything that your ancestors built. Excuse me? No, we need to lay down. So yes, rest, you know, um, um, mindfulness, cooking, gardening, being in nature. Like these are our birthright. Like we need to have these these things available to us. So yeah, so I embed all of this into the work that we do because I want people to reclaim it. And then uh, growing up, in a, I, I want to move on to uh, one of, to our closing question, but uh, to your point, there's a saying in the hood, uh, sleep is for the rich or I'll, I'll rest when I'm dead. Um, those, right. No, no. <laughs> those two are so big. Um, but anyways, uh, we're nearing the end of our time. And, but I wanted to ask this because it's important to me. Um, my, I have a sister who is considering nursing school and also considering being a doula. Uh, what advice and, you know, the amazing being too, we went to the same high school and uh, just watching her growth and everyone else in our community um, just doing amazing things is so beautiful. Uh, but I wanted to get your take. I wanted to hear if you have any advice for aspiring uh, maternal wellness and adv- advocates uh, in the age of the post uh, Roe and Dobbs world that we live in. Um, one minute is not nearly enough, so feel free to take two. Um, so, <laughs> um, and also just to serve as inspiration, um, if you can uh, tell us also about like some of the clients that you've had um, and where people who are interested in this work, where they could be uh, in a couple sure. of years if they follow up in the in this line of work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my advice, I, I, I just feel like, um, I don't know if I'm qualified to give advice, but I would definitely say this, that, um, if you feel called, right. If you feel something on your heart, that's telling you to move in this direction, to do this work, you are needed. Mm-hmm. And that calling is because the spirit wants you to be in this work because you are needed. We need literally need more people, more bodies, more consciousness, more leaders, right? And we need a generation of people to come up and do this work, right? So I would say find um, a a doula training program. Obviously, I'm going to tell you about Mama Glow because what we do is incredible. And we have an incredible community of global, you know, global community of doulas on every continent except for Antarctica, but we have them everywhere, right? And, And we have doulas all over the country and we have a vibrant community. So I would say come to us, you know, we have digital online training programs, as well as um, programs in person. But um, the other thing I would say is that in the post row post Dobbs world, you know, we really need um, people who are also here to like find themselves inside the care gaps where we ensure people don't fall through. And so we need people who can also provide um, abortion doula support, we need people who can provide logistical support for folks who are terminating pregnancies um, and experiencing loss. And 
you know, abortion is also a birth, right? And so on the other side of that, like, what does care look like? You know, what does mental health support look like? What does recovery support look like? You know, what is like, you know, someone's life arc look like after an abortion, they need the support. And so we need people to show up who can help with that as well, right? And that is something that also you can learn within um, doula training. And then finally, I would say like, even if you are on the nursing path, we educate nurses. We have an incredible program with nurse care managers um, with one of the largest insurance companies in the world right now. And it's amazing to be able to work with nurses and give them doula competency training. Like that's huge, right? So having that before you head into nursing school is amazing because it'll improve and, and inform your nursing practice and make you a better nurse when you are working with individuals. Um, so that's what I would say. I think that, um, you know, if you start this work now, like especially if you want to just do doula work, even if you are in nursing school or if you're in college, we have some people who, when they're in summer, they might do some births, right? Or they might do postpartum work while they're in school. Like it is feasible to do. Um, you know, for me, I did the work for many years as a solopreneur doula and then um, had a partner and we worked together. And then I launched the training program because I knew that there needed to be more people than me, <laughs> right? And so in that, I was able to work with many people who y'all know, um, including like Alicia Keys and Ashley Graham and DJ Khaled and, you know, all these kind of, um, you know, people in, um, I would say, um, media and fashion and entertainment who were having babies um, and Hathaway, like folks like that, right? Who also are like committed to, um, maternal health outcomes and also have a voice in this movement because I'm also educating them so they can say things like that help us to shape this conversation, right? So, um, but my goal obviously is to really help um, improve, you know, the the experience for, for all birthing people and, um, and ensure that also there's a future of birth workers on the front line. And so if you feel called, come join us because we need everybody, we need all hands on deck because there's so much work to be done and our people deserve it. Professor Thomas, it's been great having you on Let's Just Talk and I look forward to continuing this work and conversations with you in the near future. Thank you so much, Ami.